Heavenly Father, we are truly most grateful that you are our rock and redeemer, that every moment of every day you are there for us to to lean into, to turn to, to be embraced by. Father, I pray for our country and the many needs of its many people. I pray for wisdom for our leaders, for patience and protection and endurance for all who serve us in every community, as well as for those representing our nation around the world. I pray for missionaries scattered throughout the earth in all manner of situations, faithfully declaring your word to those so desperately in need of you. Lift these workers up. Strengthen and refresh them. When it's dark and doubts assail them, send your Holy Spirit anew to them to fill their hearts and minds with encouragement. I pray for those of us here today and others who count themselves as part of this local body of Christ who cannot be here today, that you would knit our hearts together in you, that you would nurture in each of us a sense of common calling, a clear vision of the work you would have us do right here, right now, every day. I pray for those who so willingly serve you here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, singing, playing instruments, operating the soundboard, running the visuals, caring for the little ones, teaching in Sunday school, managing finances, maintaining the building and grounds, leading small groups, assembling bulletins, providing guidance and making crucial decisions about the body, and much more. Thank you for all of these and so many others who labor faithfully, quietly, and often invisibly. Bless them as they serve you and us. Thank you for meeting us here in this moment as we turn our hearts and minds toward your word. Help us to receive all your Holy Spirit wants us to receive. We pray all of this in the name of your son Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Excuse me. Our second reading today is John 16, 1 through 15. You can find it on page 1072 in the Pew Bibles, and I think it'll be up on the screen so you can follow along. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will not he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm not Dan. I'm Stephen. Dan is away in Florida on a working vacation with his family for a couple of weeks. The working part is related to his pursuing an advanced degree. So I'm here today. Sorry. And next Sunday, Christine Bruce will be bringing the word. Today, we're continuing our journey in John, a journey that began about 10 months or so ago. And before we dive in, oh, and it'll continue until about October, November of this year, so we're going to be there for a while. But I thought it might be a good idea to do a brief review before we get into the details today. And by the way, every sermon in the series is online at www.hvpc.org. So if you've missed one or more, go out and listen. Feel free to binge listen and have a good time and get caught up. Okay, the Gospel of John opens with what Pastor Dan called an overture. An overture in music or literature is a prelude or preview of what's to come. It's a broad brush painting of major high-level themes that will be addressed in the extended piece. Overtures in music are often very moving and evocative. The first four very poetry-infused verses of John are especially grand and thrilling. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Sends a little tingle down the spine. Now this prologue, or prelude, runs for about 18 verses or so, And immediately following the prologue, John the Baptist, not the writer of this gospel, by the way, endorses the ministry of Jesus, calling him the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Next, through about chapter 4, John addresses Jesus' initiation into public ministry, beginning by reporting on how he turned water into wine. There is also a surreptitious encounter with the Pharisee Nicodemus, and the very bold and intriguing confrontation with the Samaritan woman at the well. From there, in chapters 5 through roughly the beginning of chapter 12, we are shown Jesus at work, engaging with religious authorities, stirring things up by healing a man lame from birth on the Sabbath of all days, as well as performing performing other miracles of healing, deliverance, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, and raising Lazarus from the dead. In other words, him being the son of God. Now, everything John shares in his gospel frames Jesus as pointing to his father and citing the father as the source of his authority. And unlike the other three synoptic gospels, instead of relating the parables that Jesus used to teach his followers, he's shown as teaching by example. Instead of merely telling his disciples what they need to know, he is showing them through his interactions with the misleading religious leaders, the people in search of a shepherd, and them, the often clueless disciples. Then around chapter 12, 
the mood and focus begins to shift. From chapter 12 through chapter 16, the first part of which we are looking at today, this is what I call the long goodbye. As Pastor Dan mentioned last week, the guys are still hanging out in the upper room. So while throughout the book, John reports on Jesus repeatedly dropping hints about his eventual departure, now this is the focus. Jesus turns his full attention to his disciples, knowing they're about to go through the roughest part of their experience with him so far. He is going to the cross to die, and they, for a time, will be scattered, dazed, and forlorn. So we're caught up. So let's set the mood for what's happening now in chapter 16. Now imagine with me a small, pretty, unassuming house set in a typical street in a small town in middle America. There are shrubs, a few flowers, and a tree. In the driveway is a solid but well-used station wagon. In the neatly trimmed yard are a girl's tricycle and a boy's bike, both with multicolored streamers proudly dangling from the ends of the handlebars. On the frame of the boy's bike, near the spokes, are clothespin playing cards that make a roaring sound when the boy rides up and down the street pretending to be a famous race car driver. It's the home of the Petersons. There's the mom, Judy, the dad, Sam, and the children, Joy, who is five, and Jimmy, who is 10, going on 15. Sam works hard in a gritty blue-collar job in a hot factory, diligently pursuing the American dream. Judy works from home as a seamstress and cares for the kids. Every Sunday, they are all in church, devout believers for whom their faith is central to their lives, and life is good. But it's the 1940s. And the world is in massive upheaval. Across both oceans, war is chewing up country after country. The U.S. has even been attacked and the infamous day of Pearl Harbor playing out. Every able-bodied man is being called up or volunteering for service, including Sam. Sam and Judy have talked, prayed, and wrestled with the inevitable, especially over how to tell the children that their father is going away for an indefinite period of time. Finally, they've decided, let's tell them after Sunday dinner. So Judy clears away the dishes, and they sit around the table with ice cream, the kids' favorite dessert. Judy tells them that their dad has something very important to say to them. Enjoying their ice cream, Joy and Jimmy turn their eyes to their dad. Sam carefully explains that he is joining the army and will be going to Europe to fight a terrible enemy. The children are confused and deeply saddened. What do you mean you're leaving us, cries Jimmy? Where are you going? Why can't we all go? Are you ever coming back? I don't want you to leave, Dad. Don't go. Please don't go. As her big brother expresses his fears and sorrow, Joy's eyes grow bigger and fill with tears. She, too, is confused and heartbroken over this news. Patiently, prayerfully, Sam and Judy continue talking with their children as the sun goes down and the earth grows dark outside. Now, if you need them, there are tissues on either side of the sanctuary. It's a little sad. This is kind of what the mood is like for the disciples in this passage. Jesus has moved from dropping hints about his departure to saying outright, I'm going away. You can't come with me. You're going to be very sad, scared, and worried But I'm sending the comforter to help you do all you need to do after I'm gone. 
Now, given that it is generally thought the disciples were anticipating an earthly king and kingdom, these are really hard truths for them to come to grips with. This is new foreign territory. As with Jimmy and Joy, this is overwhelming and highly emotional information. Now, before we go on, I want to dispense with a problem that arises for a few people. With verse 16.5, where Jesus states, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? Hold on a minute, some will say. Wasn't Jesus asked this very thing in verses 13.36 and 14.5? The answer is yes, more or less. And so for some, this raises the specter of a major contradiction. But as I see it, it's really not that big of a deal. As with our story about the Petersons, when little Jimmy, out of the depths of his breaking, distraught heart, asks his dad, where are you going? He's really not interested in the specific answer to that question. And being told his dad is going to Europe is meaningless to him and his little sister. All they hear and can grasp is, dad's going away to some dangerous and mysterious place. And their primary concern is, they're going to be left behind. So the previous two times, when first Peter and then Thomas asked Jesus where he is going, this is near the beginning of the long goodbye discourse. The disciples are caught up in a rash of emotions and trying to wrap their heads around the fact that it appears they are going to be abandoned. And yet here in chapter 16, Jesus is more or less pointing that out and saying, so far, you really haven't focused on asking me where I'm going in a way that you really want to understand. And he's further scrambling their minds, explaining that once he's gone, things are going to heat up for him. The very reason he's spending so much time with them, talking about what's happening, about to happen, is so that later, when the dust settles, they will remain faithful. In verses 1 through 4, we read, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things from the beginning because I was with you. So in a sense, this shouldn't be surprising that people... Friends, trusted religious leaders, people they know are going to be coming for them. Jesus was very blunt with them as recorded in both Matthew 10 and Mark 13 where he said, Brother will deliver deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Author Henri Nouwen who, by the way, once hung up on me, true story. In his book, The Way of the Heart, quotes one of the desert fathers, St. Anthony, as saying many centuries ago, a time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you are mad, you are not like us. For all true believers across all time, this has been true. And it's just as true today. We will be attacked for our faith by those closest to us. Three points to keep in mind, based on what Jesus shared with his, with his disciples, is one, yes, they will believe, believe they are doing a service to God by attacking. But two, they really don't belong to God or know him. 
which implies the disciples and we do. So the source that's driving them to attack is Satan. And three, Jesus is going to send the comforter to buttress the disciples and us when challenges arise. For now, the time is running short and Jesus isn't able to tell them all he wants to tell them and all they need to know. Also, without living through certain experiences, they wouldn't be able to grasp what he might be able to tell them. Think back to our analogy as Sam is saying goodbye to the kids. In such a situation, there's so much any parent would want to be able to tell their children, to prepare them for the challenges ahead, to encourage them to live honorable lives, to never give up hope and more. Now, Sam longs to explain to Jimmy how to be a good man and to Joy how to find a good man. Maybe, if all goes well, Sam will return from the war and be able to do just these things. But if not, what will happen? Mom will be there. The grandparents will be there. Aunts, uncles, and cousins will be there. Teachers, pastors, and coaches will be there. It will take a village, but the children will find comfort and be guided into all truth. So what is it exactly that this Holy Spirit is going to do when he comes? Why is it such a good thing for Jesus to leave so the Holy Spirit will come? We get this information in verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So essentially, the Holy Spirit is going to act in the world. The whole world at the same time. And in each of us on behalf of Jesus... Now, before, Jesus, as fully man and fully God on earth, could only be in one place at a time. Now, as the disciples and we carry the good news to the ends of the earth, his Holy Spirit is with us everywhere, acting on Christ's behalf, and he does three things. First, he acts concerning sin because they, the world, do not believe in Jesus. This is related to holiness. God, through the Holy Spirit, exposes the foolishness of godlessness. Now, since no one likes being made a fool, this is part of why we'll be attacked, since we are speakers of the truth. Second, he acts concerning righteousness, because Jesus goes to the Father. This is related to character. You know, what you do when no one's looking. The absence of Jesus on earth makes the heart filled with the Holy Spirit, grow in righteousness, along the lines of Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Third, he acts concerning judgment, Because the ruler of the world is judged. This is related to victory. Who is the ruler of the world? It's Satan. But we don't have to fear this enemy because he's already been judged. The world is overcome. The enemy is defeated. Victory is ours. So, once Jesus is gone, the Holy Spirit will come. And as Paul Harvey used to say, tell us the rest of the story. Guiding us into all truth. Day by day, 
moment by moment, just in time, and just as we need. Why, you mean? Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> this is what Jesus has been telling these somewhat clueless, befuddled, grief-stricken disciples over the past several chapters. I'm leaving you, but you won't be left alone. So why, you may be wondering, is Jesus taking so much time, so much care, working so hard to help the disciples understand? Again, go back to our little story of Sam saying goodbye to his kids. Why is it so important to the parents that that despite the pain and confusion and grief it stirs up, that they do everything they can to help Joy and Jimmy, as far as they are able, grasp what's happening? Simple. Because Joy and Jimmy are theirs. They're Sam's and Judy's children. These two precious lives are in their care. And so it is with the disciples and with us. We are his. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the pain, the patience, the passion, were all about us because we are his. In chapter 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and us saying, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. We are his. In fact, we're so valuable to him that he's, as Jesus declares in the final verses of today's passage from the Amplified Version, through the Holy Spirit, all that is his will be shared and revealed to us. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear to hear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, full and complete truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but he will speak whatever he hears from the Father, the message regarding the Son. And he will disclose to you what is to come in the future. He will glorify and honor me because he, the Holy Spirit, will take from what is mine and will disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine. Because of this I said that he, the Spirit, will take from what is mine and reveal it to you. So, what are our takeaways? Those little nuggets out of this 20 minutes of wordiness that can help us live out the week ahead. First, we are not alone or on our own. Second, the enemy is defeated. And third, we are his and we are loved. One more thing. If you are wondering whether or not you really are his and are thinking that it would be a good thing to have that blessed assurance that Jesus is yours and that you are his, you can. 1 John 1, 9 explains plainly, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 10, 9-13 goes further, stating, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And once more in 1 John four thirteen through 15 we are told... By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, 
because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So again, if you are wondering whether or not you really are his and are thinking it would be a good thing to have that blessed assurance that Jesus is yours, it is likely that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now, convicting gently of the sin that needs to be acknowledged and repented of, urging you toward the hope of righteousness, and assuring you that that the enemy is overcome and that you are the Lord's. If this is the case, I would urge you, before you leave today, talk with someone. And let them pray for you. Don't hesitate to grab an elder, a deacon, me, someone. But don't leave allowing any doubt to gnaw away the promise God is holding out to you. Let's pray. Wow, God. What an amazing God you are. You are fantastic, overwhelming in a good way, and truly awesome in every sense. And that you, the God whose thoughts are not our thoughts, whose ways, thankfully, not our ways, that you love us, care for us, make us yours is simply breathtaking. Father, I pray through the continuous prompting of your Holy Spirit that you will remind us just how wonderful these truths are, that you would remain in our hearts and minds as fresh insights and never be old news or stale realities. Lord, for those who may be uncertain about whether or not they actually are yours, I ask that you would encourage them, help them understand that because this is something that is on their minds, it is on their minds because the Holy Spirit is working in them. That you, Lord, the hound of heaven, the good shepherd, the lover of our souls, that you are relentless and persistent when it comes to gathering those who are yours. I pray that none would leave today in doubt. That those who have questions would have the courage to grab someone here to talk with and pray with before they leave. Now, as we sing our closing songs, give our tithes, and prepare to go into Sunday school class or out to the life we live daily, be with each of us. Stir up in us the word we have received today. Bring it to our minds regularly throughout the week as encouragement. Lead us to find our strength in you moment by moment, knowing and resting in the truth that we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.